BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 199. This is one of those episodes that's just a conversation without any goals in mind. And it really does it. We just kind of go everywhere. It goes off the rails quite a bit. Uh, but that's because the conversation is with a mathematician, and I rarely get a chance to talk to someone in that discipline. The mathematician is Milo Beckman, who wrote a book titled Math Without Numbers. This is a fun, weird, quirky new book with lots of pictures in it that really does explain everything from extra dimensions to multiple infinities to advanced topologies and other very high-minded mathematical concepts without using any numbers at all. It's just about the ideas and the implication of those ideas. And that seemed like something I would love to talk about. And we do go onto a lot of multiple tangents. Uh, so it kind of sounds like one of those dorm room conversations, except in this one, the people don't just know only the things they can look up on Wikipedia. One of them is a true expert in the, in the field of mathematics. And I think you're going to really enjoy this. So here it is, the conversation with Milo Beckman, the author of Math Without Numbers. Let's let's talk about math. Um, yeah. I'm a very verbal person. Um, yeah, yeah. Math does not make intuitive sense to me. Sure. Um, I uh, I remember taking like the ACT and the SAT. Like I scored, you know, perfect score on the on the verbal parts of it, and then the math stuff was a struggle. Like so, I, right? I would, yeah. Um, so I know that I personally, but I, like when I look at a like a one of my sponsors, um, the uh, Great Courses has a has a course where they vi- where it's all visualized math. Yeah, yeah. And, um, every time I see like an animation or a visualization, or I remember uh, Donald Duck in Mathland, I I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. Like if right. I can, if it can be visualized for me, and it also is very magical. Like if I can see the Pythagorean theorem, or I can see pi demonstrated on a wheel or something, I'm like, yeah, oh, yeah. that's what it meant this whole time. And exactly. No. Like, 
I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I'm I'm a very visual learner, and I always had this problem when I was when I was studying math, where they would define this concept and it'd be like, okay, definition: a manifold is like a locally Euclidean topological space. And I'm like, what? Like, and then you flip back a couple pages, and you're like, what was locally Euclidean again? What is a topological <laughs> space? And you spend like 20 minutes, and then finally you get it. And it's like, why didn't you just draw me a picture? <laughs> like, you could have just shown me this whole time. I yeah, um, and I feel like. Um, math for me, uh, it, it starts to become useful when I can like imagine that it is a framework for building up levels of abstraction to understand right. uh -huh. the very complicated things that are happening like right here in this conversation. Like at some yeah. level we can reduce, 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 and we're getting down into chemistry and physics. And then eventually we're getting down just to math. Just Yeah, math. yeah, yeah. And I feel like the the escape from the state of nature started by saying like, you know, if this angle is the same as this angle, then there's a third angle that we don't can't uh, we can't observe, but we can in, we can infer must be this. And it, it's not one of those mm -hmm. like maybe maybe not. It's like it was it will 100% be this. Right. So yeah. It's like, yeah, like certainty from it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's that's uh, that's the magic of it for me. So that being said, let me start out with like a very uh, very broad and general question, which is: sure. was, was math discovered or invented? Aha. Uh -huh. It's a, it's a great question. I mean, my answer to that is I say discovered, but I think you have to break it down because math is a huge, huge overarching branching category of things. And I think like, first of all, when we're talking about math, people are generally talking about very different things. I sort of wish we had more precise language for it. Cause I think most people, they think of math and they're thinking of like specific sort of tools and techniques. So maybe like, you know, long division was invented, right? Or, you know, the specific ways of like writing down numerals and cross multiplying and stuff, that stuff was invented. But I think the underlying concepts of like this concept of number, this concept of quantity, these ideas of dimensions and, and infinity and shapes and structures and stuff, that stuff I think is pretty much discovered. And the best evidence I have for that is that many different uh, independent cultures have sort of discovered more or less the same math and everyone kind of has a different language for it, right? So you know, maybe in one place, it's like tally marks, another place, it's like an abacus, another place, it's like knots in a string or something. But basically, these same general tools have been created, these same general ideas underlying sort of just like the structures of the world we live in are, are pretty universal. And, you know, we don't make up like which numbers are prime. It's sort of once you set the rules in place and define your terms, you just have to then discover it. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's, that's a good way to look at it. I uh, I, I say as if I have any authority on the matter. Um, the uh, hey, I agree that the math expert says things that are true. Um, uh, well, how did you get started in this as something to be fascinated with and devoted to? Yeah, so I mean, I don't even remember really. I was pretty young, and I was really into just like reading and writing and math, sort of all together. I think I was just kind of like one of those kids who was really into like symbols on paper. I was also obsessed with like New York City subway maps and stuff. Um, but yeah, I think math ended up being what I dedicated the most time to just sort of because there's a, a more clear path with, with math. There's sort of like not necessarily the same like training programs you can go to for some of this other stuff. And, and my parents sort of put me into various math programs. And I really had the, the very fortunate opportunity to sort of experience math outside of the standard uh, school math curriculum. Because mm -hmm. I think, I, you know, when I talk to my friends or talk to students or just anyone really, I think everyone there's a pretty consistent, you know, with, with, a, with notable exceptions, but there's a pretty consistent feeling that math in school is stressful. 
and then it's kind of like this hurdle that you have to get past and uh, people are like you know as you said at the very beginning of the call like oh i never had like a very quantitative mind or something like that um that's a very common sort of refrain in our culture. And I sort of got to bypass that entire thing. And I was always surrounded by people who were obsessed with math and, you know, get to go to these math camps where you just make friends with people who are just as into math as you are. And the whole thing is around like, you know, we're hanging out and we're just doing activities, but then you're also like, wait, what about this idea? And then we spend an hour talking about that idea. And so for me, math was always something that was like fun and creative and collaborative. Um, and yeah. And so it sort of developed from there. What happens at math camp? What happens in math camp? Lots of math. You wake up, you do some math, you eat lunch, you do some more math. Well, again, it's about what, what do you mean by this word math, right? So like I took a class on polytopes uh, at math camp and that's just like high dimensional shapes. And we basically spent the whole time like drawing dodecahedrons and talking about like, oh, what, what shapes exist in four dimensions, right? There's the equivalent of a cube is a hypercube. The equivalent of a tetrahedron is like this thing called a, I think it's a five simplex or four simplex. And then it's like, well, what else is there? Is there an equivalent of a, like a dodecahedron? Is there like a 12-sided uh, symmetrical four-dimensional shape? And it turns out that even though we can't see the fourth dimension, you can kind of reason about these mm -hmm. things and sort of like use the same tricks you use to talk about three-dimensional shapes for four-dimensional shapes. And, you know, that's kind of fun. You get to sort of like peek into this alternate universe. It, it is, is very escapist. It's very escapist. You know, when I was growing up, I cared very little about the real world and I was way more interested in this kind of like very simple, pristine, like neat and clean world where there's just like you set the game and then you play the game and, and that's all there is to it. What was uh, the inspiration for putting this book together? Yeah, so I really wanted to sort of reclaim math because again, you know, math has this kind of dirty word uh, uh, sort of, it's, it's just not seen as like a fun and exciting collaborative thing. And I, and I think that's not universal. That's not always been the case, but I think people have not really gotten the opportunity to see the math that is in this book you know it's sort of like remains exclusive and you're sort of not allowed to get access to this fun stuff until you've kind of gone through this hazing ritual of like doing a million problem sets and majoring in math and stuff and i just wanted to sort of prove to people that this stuff that people call like higher math or abstract math or whatever is actually not that complicated and sort of the basics of it you can understand without having to sort of sit down and roll up your sleeves and do the math um, I also wanted to to sort of get the pictures, the visuals, as we, as you were talking about. You know, um, for me, math has always been a very visual subject. There's a bunch of really weird, cool, abstract objects that you get to just play around with, and I wanted people to see that because I've always wanted to see that. And so, my favorite part about this book was getting to sort of turn my kind of like notebook sketchy diagrams and work with an illustrator who I really admire and respect, Amorazzo, and sort of create these really nice sort of artful like diagrams that really just feel like illustrations of, of like this weird math world. Yeah. This is exactly the book that I've wanted my entire life. Uh, this is, this is really, like, yeah, this is how you, I mean, when it comes to math, like, like, um, I mean, this is, I have these vast pockets of ignorance in this, in this domain. And this is a very, this is, like I said, it's like, it's one of the, is how we started building science in a lot of ways. Like uh, it's used, it's one of the first things a civilization um, discovers that, and they build upon that, this notion that, oh, there's more to this than just crops and, and fields. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so like, the, <laughs> and then like, you know, it, a lot of times it's born in that world of just keeping up with cycles and keeping up with, uh, you know, who owes, who owes who what, but then, right. And then eventually they're like, oh, wait, I accidentally 
cracked open a secret of the universe, and and now I don't know. What and, yeah, um, yeah, no, it, it is, and and I, I I'm really glad to hear you say that because like yeah, the goal I think math is very sort of important and universal, and it's made very exclusive. So the idea of this is really trying to be like math for math folks or math for people who sort of haven't decided whether they like math or not yet. So <laughs> we're going. Um, so you lay the book out with uh, talking about three main ideas, three big branches. Mm -hmm, yeah. uh, if you would, let's go through them. Let's go through all three. And what are the three branches and go through them in any order you'd like? Yeah, sure. So the three branches of, of like the math that you would learn if you majored in math at sort of any uh, university or graduate school or anything like that, the three of them, people don't even know what these terms are, but they're topology, analysis, and algebra. And those sound pretty complicated, but topology basically is just the study of shapes and spaces and dimensions and sort of anything resembling uh, physical space. Um, so, you know, you get to talk about like three-dimensional shapes, four-dimensional shapes, stuff like that. Um, analysis this is most closely associated with like calculus and stuff and this is basically the study of infinity sort of the infinitely large and the infinitesimally small um the these ideas of things that are continuous like continuously infinite um versus countably infinite the sort of different sizes of infinity people don't really talk about that's one of my favorite areas in in abstract math and then the third one algebra um has the same name as the algebra you do in school, but they're pretty wildly different. I think they just ran out of words and kind of used it again. But <laughs> algebra, in this sense, they could either call it abstract algebra or generalized algebra. Um, and this has to do with sort of like structures and symmetries and sort of like underlying patterns that sort of are hidden underneath uh, uh, other concepts. So that's kind of the most abstract of all. Uh, that section of the book is kind of like, I present it as a sort of form of like meditation. It's kind of like you clear your mind and now we're just thinking about the very basic idea of like, what are objects? What are relationships between objects, you know? And that's kind of what algebraists talk about. Wow, okay. And I'll, um, uh, I also appreciate your mathematical mind laying out this book in, in such clean structure, because uh, you have these three branches and you have three branches within the branches, uh, which is very nice. I appreciate that a lot. <laughs> right. um, well, let's let's go through them one at a time. Uh, topology, uh, reiterate what topology is, and then let's talk about like, you know, um, yeah. So, so the, yeah, the three, the three chaps, sub chapters here for topology are shape manifolds dimensions. And so this, each section, I kind of start with like a leading question to sort of like, be like, what are we even talking about here and sort of drive the, the process forward. So for topology, the question I start with is how many shapes are there? How many shapes are there? This is so good because, because yeah. this also plays into like, uh, you know, psychologically speaking or, or neurologically speaking as, as a brain develops, one of the first things that happens is we bring into focus shapes and color yeah. and then also um the the retina uh is receives information from the outside world in two dimensions and even though the retina is a three-dimensional object the 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 image that is delivered into consciousness that is sure, extracted yeah. from uh light is um two-dimensional and then the third dimension mm -hmm. is constructed within the brain and so right. it's, it's already a um a virtual concept. It's already an abstraction, even at the level of the third dimension. And then distant yeah. information is something that you learn. Like people who um who have who have had have lost their vision at an early age and they gain it later through surgery or through technology, have to learn how to uh see things at a distance. And right. So right. Like distance is also a construction and it's also something that is in in a way like a purely imaginary concept uh, when it comes to brains making sense of things. Um, totally, yeah. So like the idea that we start with, with, with shape 
and then the mm -hmm. shape like abstracts up into three-dimensional worlds and then we're kind of limited to that unfortunately by the way the evolution handed us the way that our brains work yeah brain. unfortunately yeah and then and then the that i feel like is our introduction to consciousness itself it's our introduction to reality itself and the idea the question is like how many shapes are there that's a bonkers question so tell me more yeah. Yeah, well, so I mean, that's that, believe it or not, that is kind of one of the driving questions in topology and a, a slight variant on that question. I say slight uh, and there's more specifics in the book, but a variant on that question is kind of one of the big open questions in mathematics today. And if you go into the field and you study topology, you might actually spend your days trying to like discover new shapes in higher dimensions. Oh, my God. Yeah, um, hold on, hold on. So you're saying there are people in this world wake up and they, they 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 drink coffee and they take a shower and they go to work and they sit there and go hmm i'd like to find i'd like to yeah. just, like i wonder if there's another shape that i haven't yeah <laughs> pretty much seen yet yeah i mean and actually like they'll be so de deep into this one particular like area of it that it's not even just this like hmm, let me think of a shape it's like okay let me continue on the six year long work of these three other teams that have discovered this particular way of moving shapes around in space it's really, I mean, I don't understand this stuff. I interviewed a topologist when I was writing this section of the book, and she actually told me that she wanted to study four-dimensional manifolds, four manifolds, when she was in graduate school, which is notoriously the most complicated dimension. That's always blown my mind. Like dimensions five and six and seven and stuff, people have figured out more or less, but dimension four somehow is like the sticky one. What's a manifold? Okay, yeah, yeah. So manifold is a specific kind of shape, and it sounds complicated, but really like a sphere is a manifold. Uh, an infinite plane is a manifold. A man well, what, make, a, what makes it a manifold? What makes it a manifold is that it doesn't have any boundary. It doesn't have any sort of like edge points or like special points. So um, an alternative thing that's not a manifold would be a disc. So if you have a disc, a filled in disc, uh, you can sort of like, if you were standing on a disc, you would be like, okay, this is a normal shape. And then you walk to the end and there's like a cliff. You would see that you're on the edge of the cliff and, and there's sort of a boundary there. So that makes it not a manifold. Whereas a sphere, just which is a is a ball, just the shell around a ball. There's a dif the difference between a sphere and a ball is a sphere is just the shell. The ball is the filled in object. Okay. So if, if you're on a sphere and you're walking around, you're never going to hit a boundary, right? No matter where you go, it sort of looks like you're just on a flat plane, pretty much. And that's why you might have, you know, like flat earthers, right? <laughs> you have flat earthers. You have sphere people who know that the Earth is a, is a round shape, is a sphere. But then there are also other manifolds, other other manifolds that are sort of in the same category of like, it looks like a plane locally. Um, and one of those, for example, I talk about in the book is a torus, so just a donut shape. If you take, if you, if you live, if the earth was shaped like a donut, right? It would have the exact same sort of local feeling to it. You'd walk around and it would kind of just look like you're on a flat surface. And believe it or not, even though there's a hole in a donut, there's no kind of like hard boundary rim to that hole. You can't sort of like walk up and peer over the edge of that cliff. Um, and so that's what makes it a manifold. Uh, and yeah, so this question of how many shapes are there, this question that I love presenting to like sixth graders or whatever, because you just get to start out shouting out like, oh, circle, triangle, star, whatever. And then you kind of refine the question more and more and you lead it more in this direction that mathematicians have taken it in. And you get to this really complicated question actually of sort of what are all the different manifolds in existence? And we've finished up classifying it for one dimensional manifolds, two dimensional manifolds. And very recently in like 2005, they they proved, someone proved uh, like some like Thurston's geometrization conjecture or something yeah. and basically <laughs> finished up the work for a third dimension. 
And the weird thing to me, the thing that's always blown my mind is that, and, and someone who actually studies apology is probably going to tell me I'm getting the details of this wrong. Sure. Um, what I what I learned is there's a thing called surgery theory, and surgery theory is only something you can do if you have five dimensions of wiggle room or more. There's kind of just like more space to maneuver around, I guess, in five dimensions and up. And using surgery theory, people have been able to somehow sort of come up with a broad classification of all manifolds all sort of basic shapes dimension five and up but for whatever reason dimension four remains a really difficult question and so it is like the most fascinating thing i actually tried to i like downloaded a textbook on four dimensional manifolds and i got like three pages in before i was just like oh god no it's not happening it's it's not not today and so i asked her she said she wanted to study four dimensional manifolds and she told her phd advisor that she was like thinking about studying four manifolds and he was like, don't do it. No one ever comes <laughs> back. If people are driven mad, you sort of go off the cliff and then you spend your whole life staring into these things. I understand that. I mean, um, yeah. in my own work, um, I talked to a researcher who studied belief for 45 years. Yeah. And I asked him as an opening question, so what, uh, what, what, how would you define belief? And he, and he just leaned back in his chair and went, that is a tough one. And I'm like, but I also, but I, I understand though, like when you get deep into thinking about thinking about thinking about thinking it, and mm-hmm. that like, you kind of lose your grip. Yeah. And bit. I can see this must happen in the world of math, math a lot. Uh, Cause uh, this, the idea there's a textbook about four dimensional manifolds. Uh, oh, there, there's, there are a bunch of them. <laughs> I mean, you, you, it's amazing. Actually, you learn about like one new area of math and you're like, huh, I'd like to read a page on that. And then you find like a 900 page textbook. And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsors. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns and I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before, and this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? 
and you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks. And drive down costs. And one. Because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. So like, like, let me back up one little bit. What does a mathematician do all day? So mathematicians are usually employed, like a, a pure mathematician is usually employed as a professor. So uh, in turn, you know, they'll, they'll teach classes and write books and stuff. But in terms of mathematical research, uh, for the most part, you're kind of just dealing with pencil and paper and maybe a friend or two. 
and you sort of have ideas and you talk things out and you're, you're like, Hey, what if we try this? And then you try it for a couple hours or a couple weeks and you're like, okay, well that didn't work. And then you're like, what if we try this? And then you try it for, you know, however long. And then you're like, okay, that, that got us like one inch closer to the solution. You publish that result and then someone else gets you another inch closer to the solution. And then finally somewhere down the line, someone proves the, the new big theorem. Hmm. This is wild. This is really wild. The idea of the, just the idea of this, it's a whole world that like, I, I don't have any, yeah, it's amazing. A connection to it. And I mean, other than like watching Goodwill hunting or something. And right. the I love the way you describe things here. Like, like if we move past manifolds and dimensions, and I think this is something that people would like to hear a lot about is dimensions, because there's a lot of mm. lay knowledge about this, a lot of folk knowledge about it. Yeah. There's also plenty of woo about it. And um sure. I, I've watched, I remember maybe 15 years ago at the early internet watching this um video about the 13 dimensions of reality and as a guy oh yeah yeah i remember that one yeah it actually ends with a time worm and i was like oh shit am i a time worm <laughs> like like right. uh, which we yeah. can get into that but i, I just wanted to, for the audience to know like you write about um like this is from the book you it's pretty clear from looking around you know that we are in there are three dimensions but don't take my word for it uh you can look at the evidence if you want to slice up a potato into tiny pieces uh, you need to hold the knife in three different directions. And there's not a fourth direction to hold the knife in. Yeah. Um, if there were, then you would be in a four dimension, you'd be a four dimensional being in a four dimensional reality right. with a brain with a brain or something that can extract evidence from four dimensions instead of just three. Yeah. Um, which I can imagine abstractly, but I can't actually imagine. It's like trying to no, make it that doesn't yeah. exist. No, I, I mean, like, no matter how much you study these things, our brains are still wired for this three-dimensional world. And That's I've never what, met anyone who claims to actually be able to see the fourth dimension. You just sort okay. of like, reason about it from the outside. This is what I want to talk about. Uh, so, like, just the way you can infer a third angle from two yeah. using the rules that, the, of how things got to be in three dimensions. Yeah. You can then infer up a level to a fourth dimension. You can imagine right. um, the way it, I've often seen it done is that the old Carl Sagan thing where you imagine like something going through a, um, like a MRI or something or it's being sliced. Yeah, right. You, mm -hmm. you, can, you, can, um, you can imagine something being sliced and you're looking at cross sections of it. Um, and you can see a, a two dimensional cross section of a three dimensional thing. And you can, but then you can imagine one, you can infer one level above that, that everything around us that is a three-dimensional object is a cross-section of a four-dimensional object. Or you can imagine a four-dimensional exactly, object, yeah. right? Right, you'd have to imagine that, like the entire universe is kind of like a slice of something bigger and that a four-dimensional being kind of peering into our universe would sort of see our full three-dimensional extent the same way you would be able to see like a two-dimensional thing on paper. Like they'd be able to see all your internal organs and stuff at the same time as the outside of your body and everything around you, right? Because they're just <laughs> looking down on you in this three-dimensional slice. Okay, I'm into it. Um, <laughs> right. What I like about it, though, is this: is the idea that we can imagine a level of knowledge that is beyond our ability yes, to, yeah. to actually manifest within consciousness. Like, mm -hmm. it, like we we can infer that it's there, but mm -hmm. we can't actually experience it. Right. Um, There's like, I mean, that's creepy as hell, but it's it's also totally. very ex exciting because it is suggests that it mu that it must exist, and if it must exist, and we can't um, we can't behold it um yeah i mean the, the question then you're getting into very philosophical questions of what you even mean by exist right so does the does a four-dimensional universe exist you know well are we talking about exist instead of the concrete sense of like is it something that you can hold is it something around you or whatever 
or are we talking about exist in this broader sense of like, is it conceptually possible? Like, can we conceive of a universe that has this sort of structure to it? Uh, and this is something that people like philosophers actually debate about. There's kind of like an ongoing debate in the philosophy of math. You know, Platonists believe that mathematical objects, mathematical structures are completely real. And there's like an alternate universe called the platonic realm or whatever, where, you know, this idea, not just like a, a, a cube made out of paper, but just an actual conceptual idealized cube, just kind of this platonic ideal of a cube just exists in the abstract. And what a Platonist would say is that, you know, when you're doing math, you're kind of like accessing that universe, like using pencil and paper as if it's like a telescope into that universe. And that's kind of the most like generous, heady version of this thing for mathematics. Uh, there are other views of it, obviously, that say, no, math is just sort of an invention of the human intuition. There's versions of it that say math, you know, needs to be tested just like science is tested. There are a lot of different views on sort of what math even is and what we're talking about when we talk about something like, for example, the fourth dimension. Where do I fall on this? This is what I'm thinking right now. Um, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, tell me. I think that if I was, I, be, I mean, I believe that um, a fourth dimension exists. Of course it does. Uh, okay. I think that we are, I mean, uh, here's if I try to show a dog a card trick, nothing happens. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> right. if I try to give a chimpanzee a algebra textbook, nothing happens. Yeah. It doesn't mean for that chimpanzee the algebra doesn't exist. Totally. Yeah. So I think this is a ridiculous argument. Uh, right. I don't think there's anyone who's devoted their life to arguing the other side of it. I'm sorry. You should have done something else. I don't agree with you. Uh, right. <laughs> so I can just argue from this from the fact that. Uh, whales are very smart, but whale, you know, I can't show a whale a Shakespeare play and anything is going to happen for that whale. That doesn't mean Shakespeare doesn't exist. Yeah. So it's very. Uh, so you're confident in the fourth dimension. I'm very confident in it because yeah. uh, um, not the objective reality isn't limited to what my brain can produce. Of course. Yeah, yeah. But I can't imagine that like uh, there's no reason that the way, I mean, we're just this primate that evolved on this planet sloshing around near the those swamps yes. and everything there's no reason to assume there isn't the the, the possibility of, of something we would consider an intelligent being being able to conceive of, of of dimensions and other and other ideas and abstractions within um the world of whatever math is describing that we don't have access to it's not even like there's a word called nescience it's like the it's a complement to, to prescience which is the it's not something you don't know it's something you don't you can't know like it's impossible yeah. to know it it's like yeah, a, yeah. It's like your your cat can't agree to the terms and conditions of iTunes because it can't right. even know that that's a thing. It's like like it's beyond ignorance. It's a high ignorance, and yeah. I, I I find some comfort in the idea that a lot of what happens in math, in math is, is like you're saying telescope using pen and paper like a telescope to get just the shadowy like notion of like oh there is knowledge beyond knowledge there is oh yeah there's truth out there's truth beyond what i can conceive there's truth beyond what i even knew i could conceive i mean how does do you, yeah. I, are you I'm very no excited. totally no i mean that makes that makes a ton of sense and i think that's what's like what is so kind of addictive about this kind of math and sort of like when you first start scraping the surface of it, you just realize the same way reading like the first three pages of this textbook on four dimensional manifolds, you're like, wow, there's just so much out there that has not even been like, we haven't even started to begin to classify like this kind of object or whatever. There's just like a whole world out there in any of these dimensions or in any of these topics we're talking about, you know, in algebra, that's something where people are talking about like what kind of structures can even possibly exist, right? You can talk about like a network like you would have on like a social network, you know, that's that's a very simple, straightforward kind of 
uh, structure, but there are all these other kinds of structures you can invent and you, people try to come up with all these like most generalized way of thinking about these things. But really, yeah, it is very humbling to sort of see like, man, when I draw this thing on paper, I am just getting kind of what feels like a shadow of a shadow of this thing that sort of exists absolutely beyond our knowledge. And it, you know, it's fun. It's fun. And once you sort of get really far into that world, it's why a lot of people don't come back. <laughs> they're kind of <laughs> like, they're kind of like, this is the true reality. And you, you kind of like look up from the page around you and you're like, what is this strange, arbitrary, three-dimensional, you know, world we live in where water has these properties <laughs> and like gravity is this strong and whatever, you know, it's completely arbitrary. And for mathematicians, it's like, why are we focused on this world? I care more about just sort of the, the abstract idea of knowledge and what can be known. I cannot imagine what it must be like to spend like six hours working on, you know, conceiving of something in a, in a higher dimension and then feeling like you're getting pretty close to it. It's like that feeling if you're like on a really good psychedelic where you accidentally right. feel like you understand everything for about three yeah. seconds and then it's like gone and you're like, oh no, did I really feel that? I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Imagine no, it is, it is, it's really trippy. That's like, I, I feel like I use that word a bunch in the book. It's like the, this mathematical universe is very trippy. It is kind of, there's no up and down. There's no like grounding in reality after you get like a, a certain way into it you sort of leave the shapes behind you leave just anything that has any bearing on reality behind you you're just in this like very abstract universe and that's pretty fun i can i cannot imagine like like the after you're like i'm exhausted i need a sandwich and then you yeah. you step away from your paperwork and then you go to starbucks and you're like how could you even like like right you're like i use mouth hole to make sound sound <laughs> no it is it is like that yeah of sandwich similar to tesseract you know like, <laughs> like yeah i don't know how you even like go with it it's really nice uh i i i know that a lot of people want to there are many people who subscribe the idea that like the level of consciousness that we're achieving at this very moment to communicate these ideas back and forth yeah. is sort of just kind of a, a accident of of natural selection totally very I mean, primitive really, yeah you know, we're really built to just you know to just mate and eat you know grubs and and then like yep. and then we ooh, oh oops i i see i understand oops, the fourth dimension yeah <laughs> no it is it, it really is and that's why i kind of like get annoyed with people who sort of expect that we should have the answers to all of these things or whatever or i don't know there's just there is a whole strain in analytic philosophy where people are like okay and we've solved this much math therefore we understand the nature of the universe or whatever and I'm like, okay, easy with that. We're basically just giraffes here, you know. Like, That's right. That's how I feel too. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, all of science just got started. I don't. I mean, like, I was reading about tectonic plates recently, and it's like, did we really not know why earthquakes happened until like when my grandma was born? Yeah, like, um, we didn't know galaxies existed like until deep into the 20th century. Like, to imagine that people talked about life and uh, you know Pretty what insane. it means to be a person and and waxed poetic in in their dorm rooms without being able to use the word galaxy or even the conceive of it without right. I mean, and just, yeah, staring up at the stars and being like those bright dots, I wonder, you know? Yeah. And that's, I'm talking about within like, like it's possible, like we, it's possible you have met someone who lived in that, in a time before they knew such things. And, and, yeah. and, and, you know, 200 years from now, there will be terms and understandings that we don't have currently. And totally. Um, so I actually, like, I was thinking about, I was thinking about that the other day with the, with the, which is the song Twinkle Twinkle. It's like Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, How I Wonder What You Are. I'm like, well, is that song really so old that they didn't know what stars were? <laughs> That's good. I mean, um, I spoke to somebody recently, just, there are even things like, uh, like Kant invented the word angst until, until that word was invented. We didn't have a word for that thing that we were feeling. And then once yeah, we have a word for it, we have languages. A yeah.
Totally. Or, That's something that I was thinking about. We do, one of the things that talks about in this book is the discrete versus continuous, right? And sort of like, for people who don't know, that is discrete is like things that are separated into chunks, like, like, duh, 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 like those are discrete sounds versus continuous is like, shh, like a continuous sound that blends into each other, right? And I think it's pretty obvious, or at least it seems to me that the universe that actually exists is, is like continuous, right? This sort of like, everything is on a spectrum, everything is kind of like, shades of gray and language could not be more discreet it's broken into words yeah. <laughs> and like you know you say angst we didn't have a word for angst but like you know even when you're translating it's sort of like you're approximating in the first place language and just like yeah us flapping our tongues at each other does a pretty pretty rough job of trying to like access what's actually going on around us. yeah it's a very low resolution uh, david eagleman told Super me it was low like, res, very, yeah very low resolution you know information transmission device uh, very much yeah. um yeah, at the same time, like I love language more than anything. Like words are my favorite thing. Oh yeah, they're fun. But I think what I like most about language is that it's attempting to articulate the the inarticulable, and it's attempting yeah. to disambiguate the ambiguous. And the, um, you know, all the math in the world means nothing if I can't communicate it in some way. And exactly. math math isn't as math can be a language for sure. I understand that, but trying to communicate mathematical concepts in, in language, in English language, which yeah, is what your book language. is all about. I mean, your book is like, let's pull the numbers away and I'm going to talk to you about it. Yeah. It becomes a real exercise in, uh, I mean, it becomes philosophical immediately because it is impossible to communicate these ideas fully just through language. But what I like about language is oftentimes I'm not really trying to communicate the idea. I'm trying to get you to uh, a place where you will, gestalt understand where i'm going and so we're really talking like above the words in a space where you're constructing an understanding that the words could never deliver they're all primes for understanding like when we were talking about dimensionality i can never fully describe that if you sit down and try to write a paragraph like i I have to prompt you enough that you start to intuit what is intuited by the other person who's describing it with their mathematical language and And sometimes I'm not sure if we if we, if we're doing it, but I like I like that that feeling you get when you're like, oh God, okay, yes, okay, there must be a dimension above the third dimension, but I can't perceive it, but I can almost. But you have it. like the idea, this rough idea, of it. totally, you know. And I and I think that's like the challenge with something like this, um, you know. Yeah, language is very rough, and you kind of have to. It's t- the challenge for teaching in general, you know, like. I, I teach people from all different backgrounds and ages and stuff. And and it is just at the end of the day, it's like, okay, I have this thing inside of my skull and I'm trying to transplant it into your skull and I'm going to use any means available to me, right? <laughs> like this thing is not particularly working. Okay, let me show you a picture. Does this make sense? And then you just keep going and then you get to that point where it's like, okay, yeah, that's what it is. And so, yeah, this, this book, I mean, one of my, one of the parts of this book that mathematicians I've shown this to have actually really liked Um this is one of the most abstract, weird parts of the book. So don't be scared if you're listening to this. There's a mathematical structure called Z2 cubed. And it's just a pretty, it's not like a special one. It's just a pretty random arbitrary thing. And I, and basically there's a, a section in a chapter of the book uh, in the, the abstraction section where it's just like, I'm going to try to tell people what is Z2 cubed by drawing a bunch of pictures, sort of coming at it from this angle, coming at it from that angle. It's the part with like the Venn diagrams and the cubes and stuff. And and, you know, at the end of the day, you kind of like get to the end and you're like, what is this thing? It's not a real thing. It doesn't exist in the real world. It's some kind of like relationship or structure or something. But you kind of do have like a feel for like what is going on there. And so I, I like the way you were describing that. Yeah, it is. It's like in a math textbook, they would have defined that in a very rigorous way where they would have started with like definition one, definition two, definition three. And then it's like, therefore, the ZT cubed is this thing. And you're just supposed to look at it and be like, uh, OK, I guess like 
you know, the rules of the game are that is what that is. Great. But, you know, it is a whole nother game to try to explain this to someone in a way where it's like, okay, yeah, I do have kind of a sense for what that thing is you're describing, even though it doesn't exist. Yeah, I'm looking through it right now. The, uh, and I'm like, oh, boy, that's that's some, I, I love the drawing. They're really good. Uh, <laughs> right. uh, but I can. Well, let, let me ask you a question about dimensionality. Um, sure, yeah. I mean, uh, let's go. Let's just ask a very childish question because that's where I'm at with this. Um, like, how many? Like, is there an infinite number of dimensions? Is there? Is there a concrete number of dimensions? Is reality a, a hall of mirrors that is infinitely recursive in that in that way? What do mathematicians have to say? Great question. So my way of looking at this is that the math, these mathematical tools are used to model different situations in reality. So if you're asking how many dimensions exist in this physical universe. Yeah. Um, most of the time in physics, you know, what, if you're talking about like cosmology and stuff, people generally use a four dimensional model of reality that has three spatial dimensions and one time dimension. That's kind of the most classic, the currently used model uh, of physics. And, and there's all kinds of questions about how those four dimensions fit together. It turns out it's not just sort of a straightforward, uh, normal four dimensional manifold. It's kind of a weird twisted four-dimensional manifold called a Minkowski space that people generally use. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of the physical universe, you're talking about physical dimensions. Yeah, usually, people, usually people model it with four dimensions. But, you know, we use all kinds of, we use dimensions to, to measure all different kinds of things, right? So, um, you know, yeah, as I said before, you know, you, if you're modeling, you know, the, the classic, the example I like to use is politics, right? People talk about politics on a left-right scale a lot of the time. That's a very sort of simplistic one-dimensional model of politics, and it clearly doesn't capture the whole wealth of ideological disagreements people have. Sometimes you take like an online political ideology test and it places you on like a two-dimensional grid, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe you can be more or less like pro-centralization state and more or less pro-redistribution and, you know, stuff like that. And then clearly there are even more than that, you know, where are you on workers' rights? Where are you on racial issues? You know, there are a lot of dimensions of political ideology and you can sort of imagine modeling this with a higher dimensional space, uh, even if you can't physically like draw a picture of like a, a four dimensional space that represents political ideology, you sort of have an understanding of what that means. And people use this all the time, you know, um, anytime, like on computers and stuff, uh, advertisers have models of people's personality that use sort of like the standard five dimensional uh, ocean model, you know, it's all, all kinds of ways people use um, dimensions and higher dimensions, like a, you can make a 12 dimensional space and just sort of model it on your computer and you can never visualize it, but it can be used for, for certain applications. Yeah, like I said, I saw a long time ago, the 13 dimensional model, and that's where I saw the time worm. And I've never, right. I have never stopped thinking about that. Oh yeah, I should say, yeah, string theory, I don't I don't know the half of it, but string theory absolutely uses, there's the, the sort of these hidden dimension theories. There are a bunch of attempts to sort of make a grand unified theory that incorporates the sort of quantum stuff and the relativity stuff. No one's mm -hmm. like fully got it figured out yet, but a lot of the proposals involve hidden dimensions. And so these are sort of additional dimensions in it, it, beyond the sort of uh, textbook four that are sort of uh, wrapped up in ways that you can't like perceive them. But I, I'm talking out my ass there. I don't know <laughs> about that stuff. Well, I do like the idea of being a time worm where you, uh, if, if your life is, if you're, Look at a life in four dimensions in your Oh, yeah. You're just like a, a worm. Oh, yeah. And no, I mean, I love I love those like diagrams of yeah. like the universe from the Big Bang to present as like I a cone. I love that. Those I are love fun. it. And you take one slice out of it. And, then and that's in, the three-dimensional three world. You're in the, you're in the present moment in three dimensions. And so you can also imagine the you're an egg and then you're a corpse. And that's one continuous time worm. 
and and then your particles kind of scatter out and yeah, part from of the everything else. Ends, yeah. yeah, and the uh, and you take one slice out of that, and that's this this physical three dimensional moment that I just experienced. But then the next one, the next one, the next one are like frames of of the worm or slices of that worm. Yeah, um, that is uh, that's Wacko. my kind of shit right there. I love it. <laughs> yeah, um, I want to uh, before we run out of time. There's a I want to give you an opportunity to blow people's uh, mind with uh, something that may, uh, uh, for people who've never, never heard of it, but I imagine you can talk about it in a way that would be fun. Um, let's talk about infinity for a minute. Um, yeah, sure. Infinity kind of has, uh, can be philosophical, kind of philosophical idea and also, or a mathematical idea or both. Cause if I'm imagining, you know, it's hard to imagine the word infinity as, as I would define it, there could be, you can't have infinity. You can't have infinity plus one. It breaks the logic of the word, mm -mm. but there's also this fun thing about the, the hotel infinity. Yeah. Uh, so could you talk about hotel infinity for a minute? Sure. Yeah. So this is, uh, this is a pretty famous example that's used when people are introducing the concept of infinity. So this is, it's this, this thought experiment where imagine you have a hotel, a very special hotel called hotel infinity, and there's just one long hallway that has infinitely many doors. So it's just door after door after door after door. No matter how far you walk down the hallway, there's still more doors as far as the eye can see. And one night, let's say it's a particularly busy night and every single room is full. You know, so we have infinitely many people in this world too. And you're the desk clerk at this hotel and you know every room is full and then someone walks into the lobby and they say, excuse me, I would like a room. So now you have infinity rooms, you have so you could call it infinity plus one people, right? And sort of intuitively, it seems like infinity plus one should basically just be the same thing as infinity. It doesn't seem like one extra person should really cause a problem here. But what do you actually do? Can, do you have to turn them away? Can you fit them in the hotel? It's, it's like a riddle, right? You can't send them sort of down to the last room because that doesn't exist. There is no last room. So, so what do you do? How do you fit this person in the hotel? And I can give the spoiler for this part of it. <laughs> I will give the whole rest of it away. But there is a way to fit this person in the hotel. And what you can do is you get on the, the PA system and you say, excuse me, would the person in room one please move down to room two? Would the person in room two please move down to room three? And in general, would every person step out of their room and move to one room further away from the lobby? And now because there's no last room, because the hallway goes on forever, there's no one who's sort of kicked out. There's no one who doesn't have a place to go. Everyone still has a room. And then you do have this one empty room at the beginning. So that's sort of an informal proof that infinity plus one equals infinity. And so then, you know, that raises other questions. What about infinity plus infinity? What about infinity times infinity? Is there anything that's actually bigger than infinity? Is there sort of anything that you wouldn't be able to fit in this hotel infinity? And I, um, I, I won't spoil the answer for that one. Yeah, okay. Yeah. We'll leave that for people to get the book. The, yeah. <laughs> the, I love this book. I love that you're the way you're approaching all this. I love that it's a, um, uh, you know, it's math without numbers. So because we are talking about the ideas here and um, you know, you can leave the numbers to people who are going to sit there for six hours and try to say like, it's, this is not just me high in my dorm room saying, dude, have you ever imagined like infinity plus seven? Like, well, right. can that be a thing? And somebody's like, that's not, like, I love that these things will come up. I think that as a as a conscious thinking thing, we often will accidentally back into some of these questions. And totally, yeah, it can feel like, oh my god, I've never. I wonder if anybody's ever thought about this before. And it's marvelous to find out. Yeah, there might be sixteen people in a building on on your on the on your university campus. That's all they're doing all day long. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. So getting a paycheck for it. Yeah, <laughs> and then Amazing. like you know, and like you know, the 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 idea that like. Uh, that to me, the idea that there were things like in 2005 that you were talking about that, that have just now been like opened. Well, up. yeah, I mean, people don't maybe don't know about this, but the Millennium Prize problems, 
uh, which in two, in the year 2000, sort of a bunch of the, the top mathematicians from around the world got together and the Clay Math Institute put out these prizes for seven unsolved questions in mathematics. And if you solve any of them, you get a million dollar prize. Give me, so, can you think of any off the top of your head, what, any of these? Yeah, yeah. so I mean, so so one of them was the one that was solved in 2005. That was the, that's the one that's about how many shapes are there. <laughs> um, Another one, another one is the, let's see which one I want to talk. One is P versus NP, and that has to do with theoretical computer science. That's something that's not talked about in the book, but it's basically there are some uh, computational problems that can be solved in polynomial time. And there are some problems that can be solved in like, like non-deterministic polynomial time. See, I, I'm, I'm embarrassing myself if any actual mathematicians are listening to this. <laughs> but basically, there, there are some things, the, the NP category is things that can be verified in polynomial time. If you give the answer, you can verify in polynomial time. And there's this, uh, it's unknown whether everything that can be verified in polynomial time can also be solved in polynomial time or not. So... That's a very rough description of it. I mean, we're getting, I, that's two out of the seven. The third one is the last one I understand. That's the Riemann hypothesis. And that has to do with like this infinite sum of imaginary numbers. And it's, it's a little bonkers. And then the other ones I've looked at it and I like, I could tell you the names of them, but I could not begin to tell you what they're about. One of them I think has to do with like turbulence and fluid equations. So some of these have direct applications other than are just like, we've been working on this for 150 years and we really want an answer by now. See, something I really do uh, really love about what you just ran through in this entire yeah. conversation is um, I spend most of my time talking to psychologists and, and reading psychological literature. And, uh, you know, psychology somewhere around like five years ago started going through what they call a replication crisis, which mm -hmm. is really like no big deal at all to me. It's like, yeah, the science it's like, you know, it's figuring itself out. It's good. And, and yeah. Uh, yeah, not every study that was done in the 1997 is going to end up being absolutely correct. We have to keep right. doing studies and some yep. of them, it's, it's, it just evolves. It's just how science works. Definitely. But like psychology really only is only about a hundred years old. And the, the hardcore psychology we look at today is, is much younger than that. And the, it's also something that was mainly done just by Americans. It's a very American science and it's slowly made its way around the rest of the planet. Um, and then like, but psychology is very fun to write about and it's very fun to read about. So it often gets headlines. Whereas yeah, like, yeah. these math proofs you're talking about may not get a headline. Right. <laughs> somebody might write, somebody might do one study that's very small and it might indicate that you should not work in a cubicle or something. So like, I think about how like math, I mean, math predates science itself. So math, we've been thinking about math for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. and yeah. We're still in 2005. We're like, Oh, figured out something new. And, yeah. and so um, if we engage it's in psychological wild, research for a thousand years, like the difference between what we're looking at now in the literature versus what we're going to look at a thousand years from now, especially as the tools become more and more advanced, as they, you know, math was given the gift of computers and, and right. uh, physics was given the gift of, of everything from telescopes to, to large hadron colliders. Like psych psychology doesn't have any of these gifts quite yet. Yeah, yeah. And I, um, I, I find that very tantalizing in that um, anytime people, anytime someone criticizes psychology, I have to remind them, like, we just got started with it. And yeah, we just started. Yeah. This is the bigger, this is the bigger, this is the big, these are the biggest questions because we're taking like, the brain that makes sense of math and trying to understand mm -hmm. that thing. Like we're, we're so we're like going as meta as we possibly can go. Yeah. It's like the camera pointing back in on <laughs> yeah. itself. So the we're, brains are trying to figure out brains and, and 
and everything is subsumed by psychology at some point. Like I'm, I don't subscribe to the idea that physics subsumes all the other sciences. I subscribe to the idea that, that uh, psychology and it's, and it's, and the tool of neuroscience used by psychology subsumes mm-hmm. everything, including math, because yeah. um, why can't I think of a fourth dimension and what happens when I start intuiting it and what is intuition and yada, right. Yeah. Um, I just something there's some sort of um, comfort I get from seeing a person like you knowing that you where you're at in your discipline, mm-hmm. you know, that you can't possibly understand the entire discipline. Like, like, Oh yeah. Like <laughs> I mean, that, yeah. It, and so it's so specialized that even people who are really the top of their field, you know, people who like have won the fields medal, which is the equivalent for the Nobel prize uh, in math, you know, maybe they'll know everything about their particular corner of, you know, algebraic topology or something. But then you ask them a question about number theory or just, or, you know, whatever, some discrete math stuff, some, some other field of math. And they're just like, that's not my field. People are like really that separated into things. You know, yeah, so I think that's great. And that, that's psychology has reached the point now where you do have to specialize, but there's still a feeling where like, uh, you, you can still be a psychologist and kind of know pretty uh, enough about every element of psychology to just speak about it at least. Right. Right. Um, but there's going to be a moment where it becomes so complex, which it necessarily so would it be like that? I think that's neat. Just the idea of, uh, sorry, I don't, that's too, that's that, that's those people. And I could never even speak to that in any way. Yeah. And I love that, that, that in math, that's just accepted. Like, like, would you say right. algebraic topology? <laughs> like, yeah, I'm an expert in algebraic topology. I don't know. I can't tell you very much about imaginary numbers. I'm sorry. It's not, <laughs> right. yeah. it's not my field. Yeah. That's wild. When you, let me ask you a final question was for Thank someone you. who'd like, like, uh, who takes a math class, uh, takes college algebra is sort of like their introduction to the escaping, whatever they uh, taught in their high school. And it seems so a- absolutely daunting Mm-hmm. Like, what would you say to someone like that to encourage them to to like feel the value of of getting at least a base level understanding of the world that you work in? Um, I think it's a lot easier if you have friends in it, if you have people to talk to. Um, I actually like one of the reasons that I started moving away from math in undergrad was because I sort of grew up in this world where I was doing math with my friends. And then when I got to college, I was like asking the people next to me, like, hey, do you want to do this problem set together on Wednesday? And they would kind of be like, like, don't talk to me. (laughs) And I found that really hard because, you know, there it's hard, no matter what, it's hard to stare at a book for 13 hours and, and do stuff with it. It's a lot easier if you have some kind of company and someone to like bounce ideas off of, especially for something like math, where you can really like lose a handle on it so easily. Uh, it's nice to have someone else that's kind of like holding ground for you, where if you like start thinking about a sandwich for a second, you can kind of come back <laughs> to to the world you're talking about. Um, and yeah, I, I sort of wish math was, was done a little bit more in that way. And there was sort of more of a culture of collaboration around it. Cause I think we kind of make it too competitive. Yeah. I can, I would love for my math class, my college algebra class to have started with someone who's like, so infinity. And just like, or we go right into like, we'll go way to the top. And then I would enjoy that person saying, look, there's no way we'll ever, it's, it's too big. It's too much. Yeah. Problems are too complex, but I want you to know that this is, where it leads to. So let's go all yeah. the way back and we're going to just talk about, you know, binomials or whatever you do in the beginning. Right. right. And, and I, I, if I had that feeling of the breadth of what we were stepping into,
Definitely. No, I, I wish it was more like that. I remember like a, a, an intro math class that I, I shopped at Harvard. They like started out, he just started out, he just wrote five axioms on the board just in symbolic notation. And he's like, these are the five axioms. Write them down. We're going to use them to prove theorems. Didn't explain what they were, what they meant, what what like the symbols meant. He was just like, these are the these are the axioms. Now we're going to prove some theorems. Let's go. Well, and you know, I think there's some pride in that. I think some people are just like, oh, it's so complicated, confusing. No one can understand it. Let's just barrel into it. But you know, I think there are many ways to teach any subject. So you, but you did do this. Like you made you gave something to us that that uh, sort of offers what we were talking about here. This math without numbers book is an opportunity to do that. So. Anyone listening to this who is about to go into a college algebra class or has or is like me is already out of university, but you don't have any, you remember you, I took college algebra over the summer just so I could only focus on that one thing. And that way I could get an A in it. Mm. If you're like me, like this is the way to go, to actually get that awe feeling that, that mathematicians feel and have a hard time translating to other people. And that is really what your book offers. And I think it's fantastic for that. I thank you for Thank me. you so much. I really appreciate that, David. Yes, yeah. And I also want to say, you know, we did have a very intellectual conversation today, but I've been told that people are giving it to their 12 year olds and, and they're oh, yeah, put it down. So, I so no, I just, I just want to make sure people listening know, you know, buy it's it for not, your daughter, it's buy it for was, your cousin. It's nothing like what I just went through. Uh, right. I just was, I just was taking advantage of the fact of, of getting to talk to a smart person. But <laughs> right. the, the book is, is, is it's fine. It's fine. Very accessible. Yeah, it's, it's fun. Crazy. It's got silly drawings. It's it's got a very quirky attitude, and I think people, everybody would enjoy it. So yeah, super. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for all. Thank you, David. This is really fun. Thanks yeah. So much. Well, bye, man. Take care. Right. Bye, bye. Bye. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about, head to youarenotsosmart.com. For more great episodes like this one, head to Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Omni, Spotify, or youarenotsosmart.com. Also about to be on Amazon Music as well. Follow me on Twitter at NotSmartBlog or me personally at David McRaney. Also, Facebook slash You Are Not So Smart. And if you'd like to support this one-person operation, help make it better, help hire staff even perhaps, all of that, go to patreon.com slash You Are Not So Smart. Pitching in at any amount gets you the show ad-free, but uh, at the higher amounts, you get posters, t-shirts, signed books, and other stuff. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. Please tell everyone you know about the show. That's the best way to support it. Talk about it on social media, share episodes that you like. And check back in about two weeks for a fresh new episode. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.